Welcome to a special edition of MarTalks on scaling your startup during an investment slowdown. Reading the mainstream business press, you might think that tech companies are going begging in pursuit of their investment capital. But when you work in MarTech, there's another story. There has undoubtedly been a slowdown in startup investments over the past 12 months. The drop, though, has predominantly affected Series B businesses. There is now far less appetite for larger cash-hungry businesses without the metrics to show near-term profitability. Instead, investors are looking to make smaller investments far earlier in a business's life cycle in order to achieve a strong ROI with a lower risk. And aside from investment capital, there is still a client budget on the table, particularly around solutions that have a short time to value, that help businesses reduce the costs of existing processes, or which have a direct impact on marketing effectiveness and revenues. The purpose of this special episode of MarTox is to assemble insights from MarTech leaders who are planning their pathway through this present economy with some practical suggestions for how to secure their businesses' ongoing success. I'll get started by setting out where the natural advantages and disadvantages are in the current market. While the investment slowdown plays out amongst more mature scale-ups in certain solutions categories, early-stage firms, particularly those which propose to have a direct impact on companies' profitability, are continuing to experience significant momentum. Then we'll look at some examples of businesses that have scaled successfully, including during previous downturns, and see what lessons can be applied to today's scale-ups. Finally, I'll share some thoughts on the role of effective leadership in winning investment and new business that I've picked up through two decades of collaborating with and investing in early stage MarTech firms. Towards the end of 2022, I spoke to Todd Michaud, the CEO of AI-powered automation vendor Hulu, who succinctly explained the recent shift in technology buying trends. Retailers don't have the appetite for these big, massive enterprise systems right now. They're anticipating uh, you know, uh, cutbacks, economic headwinds, et cetera. Um, and if we think about the pandemic era, uh, everything was focused on digital transformation, e-commerce, uh, uh, you're making sure uh, you know, that, that we had enablement to serve customers um, in, in new ways, new channels. Businesses have always been wary of big ticket projects. As Bloomreach's Brian Walker explained on a Rosenstein Group webinar last year. Uh, in North America, you are going to see uh, you know, much more mature businesses operating at scale because of the size of the market and because of the kind of the length of time they've been doing it. And also lots of experience with replatforming projects that took a lot longer, cost a lot more than expected, and potentially didn't deliver a lift in the same way that they expected when they built their business case. So a lot of these business leaders, for example, might be on their third or fourth replatforming project in their career when you, when you bring this topic up and they're like, I don't know, uh, it's just not necessarily in my priorities because it's not connected to some business outcome. The difference today is that companies which might have previously been open to larger investments in the U.S. and beyond are now showing decreased appetite for the associated risks. But that does not mean that MarTech has ground to a halt. Far from it. The focus has shifted towards the adoption of composable third-party solutions that enhance companies' wider architectures and extend the capabilities of existing systems. 
At this year's Sop Talk in Las Vegas, the mood amongst retailers was generally positive. They were actively engaged in discussion around their technology initiatives, and they were particularly interested in MarTech and composable e-commerce. Many were still planning on expanding their acquisition and deployment of commerce technology, understanding that there are a number of vendors in the space who can help them deliver improved customer experiences whilst reducing the costs of some of their existing solutions and processes. Huloop is a great example. Todd describes his solution as a no-code, over-the-top AI automation platform that in essence creates a digital worker that carries out processes in technical architectures for which businesses are currently relying on human labor at a significant cost. Other solutions categories currently with good traction include CDP, PIM, and analytics tools, which can be stood up relatively quickly and quickly have an impact on the retail or bottom line. In fact, I just spoke with a PIM provider, Pimbley, that has a professional services team that literally spends 10 to 15 days total in the go-live process with a client to bring their PIM solution online. Joshua Hudson, who heads up Pivotry's master data management practice, told us on a previous episode of MarTalks how increased capability around product information is increasingly recognized as a major commercial advantage. The early adopters, interestingly, to PIM uh, were retailers pulling all this information in from all the, uh, all the manufacturers, and the manufacturers are historically terrible at managing their data because they just want to make the product and they want to ship it out and, you know, we'll, we'll let you deal with it. Maybe they'll help out in some, you know, marketing jargon, stats or logistics or, or you know, some other things, you know, some, uh, you know, dimensional data, but uh, they, uh, you know, other than that, they don't, you know, here, it's your product. Now <laughs> you go figure out how to sell it. And then, you know, uh, in, in that, uh, in that chain, uh, then, you know, from the uh, retailers, the uh, the distributors started saying, okay, we need to start acting like the retailers did. And now we're finally getting to the point where uh, manufacturers really want to get that data in front of the client themselves. They don't want to have to rely on third party, right? They want to be, you know, direct to consumer. And so it's it's that change. It's, it's seeing what the retailers were able to do with their, you know, not so great data uh, and turn it into something that made them realize, oh, wow, if, if we took control of that, you know, if, if we owned that, we could we could sell these things direct to consumers as well and kind of cut out the middleman and, 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 and reap the benefits. There are a few other verticals poised for growth. Best-in-class cybersecurity is coming more sought after as retailers look to prevent shrinkage and losses due to fraud online, while personalization vendors should also have great opportunities to help retailers tailor their content and marketing to deliver hyper-personalized marketing campaigns and offers. So those are the solutions categories where there's currently the greatest momentum on the customer side. But how are fortunes differing for companies at different phases of growth? We're still seeing technology startups across the sector securing funding in Series A. These funding rounds typically total between a half million and two million dollars. Where we're seeing less activity is in Series B and beyond for exploratory technologies. This was neatly summed up by The Economist in February of 2023 in an article titled, How the Titans of Tech Investing Are Staying Warm Over the VC Winter. It's said that Silicon Valley is experiencing a forgotten venture capitalism with fewer deep-pocketed tourists splashing the cash and more bets on young companies by local stalwarts. In 2021, VC activity was a bit unhinged, says Roloff Berta, of Sequoia Capital, but rational given that low interest rates made money virtually free.
what passed for rationality in the boom times now looks a bit insane. With Series B often exceeding the $30 million mark, a sane investment pitch now depends more heavily on having the right metrics, such as net promoter score, brand awareness, conversion rate, and customer attention, which many companies simply are not building up during their first few years. If you're an upcoming platform vendor, that may not fill you with confidence, but it bears considering that there are past examples of companies which have successfully scaled during previous downturns. These should give today's MarTech leaders reasons to feel confident as long as they pursue tried and tested strategies. One of the major success stories, the one that stands out for me personally, is Demandware. Originally founded in 2004, they were able to raise $9 million in a Series C round in 2008 and then quickly followed that with a Series D around a year later, securing a further $12 million of investment. No mean feat considering that this took place in the middle of the global financial crisis. Demandware went on to grow exponentially before their IPO in 2014 and eventually was purchased by Salesforce two years later uh, in excess of $2 billion. How did they pull it off? Demandware is an example of a business that was laser focused on adding value to its customers at every touch point, not just in its value prop, but its marketing and product development. They built and nurtured a community of users actively engaged with them and learned from them and shared those lessons in business cases, building a library of first in-class sales enablement tools. These are the tactics that have been featured repeatedly on MarTalks if we sought to uncover the commercial strategies of today's MarTech leaders. Rajib Das, the chief executive of digital agency Ignitive, name-checked two vendors for their willingness to ease implementation with their clients. One of those vendors, Clavayu, was acquired by Shopify for $100 million in the summer of 2022. Rajiv praised their partner content when I spoke to him last year. We work very closely with Clavio, and Clavio has led with content, so much content that uh, that you really don't, you could do, you could learn everything that you need to learn, provided you understand email marketing uh, in a proper manner uh, and uh, do the implementations right from day one by, by, with your team itself. Obviously, there's some experience that you bring to the table, uh, but I was just uh, very impressed by Clavio's um, partner content strategy, if you may. Uh, that allows for building up the skills in an easy manner. When talking about the relationship between Ignitive and the commerce platform Kibo, Rajib said the two parties are joined at the hip during the implementation process for their clients. There's also scope to partner around product innovation. Chris Lemmer, the co-founder of digital agency Swiftcom, built a free integration between WooCommerce and View Storefront. The WordPress-enabled solution remains the most common e-commerce platform in Chris's home market of South Africa, as well as being widely used in many other markets. Chris identified an issue developers were having in scaling with WooCommerce through a simple and cost-effective piece of market research. Like, What's the smallest experiment you can do to test this and see whether people will actually use this product? And that's the approach we want to take, so that's why we want to do market research and build something people actually want to use. So the approach we took as a you know, small startup agency with not hundreds of thousands of dollars is 
we created a landing page for our view storefront WooCommerce integration and we ran some Reddit ads. We spent $250 to be exact. And we got about 20 or 30 email addresses of people subscribing for our beta program. So for clarity, that's not the people that went to the landing page. We had more, but 20 or 30 out of them actually subscribed. And we've interviewed probably about 10 asking about the challenges and validating this problem. And it's clear across the board, across the globe, you know, we've interviewed people from the States, from the UK, from Mauritius, from South Africa. And the problem people are facing is the same. For the cost of just 250 bucks, Chris has positioned Swiftcom as a trusted partner, not only to clients, but also to view commerce, who in turn quickly gained access to a far larger share of an untapped market segment in Africa and worldwide. Partnerships can exist between vendors as well. Todd Michaud told us how Huloop operates on an OEM model, allowing their product to be white-labeled by other retail software providers, another affordable route to market that leans off business development budget of the partnered company and its incumbent customer relationships. The recurring theme here is the importance of partnerships to technology vendors, particularly in the ecosystem where interoperability is part and parcel of the modern MarTech value proposition. Jay McBain of Canalis explains that for API-first solutions, building a network of partners is a fundamental part of your go-to-market. My go-to-market strategy is literally an ecosystem partnership strategy and completely disconnecting from that point of sale until I have the maturity and the product fit and the marketing and sales engine that's repeatable and scalable, you know, to go do that later on with distributors and wholesale and marketplaces and everything else. Jay often warns VCs off those founders that haven't taken the steps to plot their business places in their relevant partner ecosystems. But most companies, by the way, haven't done the basic blocking and tackling. They don't understand those 28 moments. They don't understand all the logos and spheres that they come through. And they don't understand the top 100 people literally um, influencing their customers before the point of sale. I tell private equity folks and VC folks, if, if the founder hasn't come to that conclusion and know the names and faces and places in the industry, they're not going to be a winning company, no matter how good their technology is. The chances are that most MarTech solutions with any traction are already highly invested in channel sales. With both client budget and investor bucks currently in short supply, it would seem advisable for scale-up leaders to lean further into this approach. So what leadership insights can we draw on what will be of greatest value to scale-ups in the present economic environment? Speaking from my own experience, both as an executive search professional as an investor, the most effective scale-up leaders need to be adaptable, collaborative, and willing to bend to feedback from their wider leadership team. A great case in point is View Storefront's Patrick Friday. View Storefront wasn't Patrick's first rodeo, and I think he's honed his abilities as a leader across both his ventures. Patrick and his team have shown an exemplary willingness to adapt to their market conditions not the least when they sought to break into the American market and offered a React version for their popular solution, which had been based on the View Storefront JavaScript library. Not being wedded to his particular tool, the team pivoted to the US market by releasing a React solution in very short order, bringing them great success on this side of the Atlantic. 
This is a picture of a business and of leadership that can weather the macroeconomic trends. Then, of course, there's the question of the right people. Miko Karakainen, the CEO and founder of Relax Solutions, has got this spot on. He's hired a crack squad of extremely knowledgeable and experienced leaders from legacy retail solutions and empowered people to run their departments like their own businesses, but with exemplary communication between those functions. It's no surprise that his business has gone from 500 to 1500 headcount in less than two years. While I strongly believe that the customer feels the effects of outstanding leadership, there's a great deal to be said for the leaders who keep their profile high while making the right public statements at the right time. Following Clavayu's acquisition by Shopify, Andrew Bialecki, Clavayu's CEO and co-founder, made this statement. The next era of e-commerce will be marked by a continued shift towards consumer privacy and the forming of strong digital relationships. Consumers now have an increased expectation of merchants to deliver smooth, customer-friendly experiences, and there is a continued proliferation of channels in which brands must deliver these experiences. This partnership builds on the combined vision of two powerful platforms to help founders and operators not just weather the new era, whatever it brings, but thrive within it. This comment seems almost prophetic today highlighting one of the key factors that makes or breaks success in modern MarTech, including when the going gets tough. As an executive search professional, I work closely with MarTech scale-ups through two major economic slumps, the dot-com crash and the global financial crisis. From this perspective, it's clear there are different ways that the right leadership can impact a company's ability to scale. Part of it comes down to character, and the natural talents of the founder and the founder's team. The majority of leaders that succeed are collaborative, trusting, and they take the time to educate the team around them and communicate in methods that are most accessible to their fellow team members. That stands in contrast to the singularity of vision, which is popularly considered to be a defining mark of an effective leader. This is valuable in doses, but I have found that those leaders that demand rank and file and shout orders are often more exposed to the bumps and scrapes that the business encounters along the way. To that end, a lot of the best leaders make a point of hiring people with different perspectives and backgrounds in order to balance their own tendencies to grab the helm. Ideally, that should include people with proven prior experience of negotiating rocking patches in their previous roles. Part and parcel of the CRO's role is to help build a realistic picture of what the business can achieve based on the available relationships and the known challenges in the market. As the business scales, you can continue to deploy similarly trusted leaders in other functions that can lead from the front, managing both their departments and further hiring in a controlled and a responsible manner. Today, the smart money is not currently on another GFC scale crash. Budget remains on the table, both from investors and from customers, for companies who successfully position themselves to all stakeholders as trustworthy collaborators in growth. Certain companies of certain sizes and certain solution categories stand to perform better than others in the next couple of years, but the same is true in any economy. By adapting to learnings from past and recent successes in the MarTech community, today's scale-up leaders give their companies the greatest possible chances for success. 
Thanks for listening to MarTalks. Please leave a review and a rating on your platform of choice. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all major podcast platforms. To find out more about how the Rosenstein Group can help you find the right leaders for your client development teams in MarTech and e-commerce, please visit our website, rosensteingroup.com.